0: Privatization of Roads and Highways by Walter Block, Chapter 6. Road Socialism What are the best institutional arrangements for roads, streets, highways, sidewalks, and other such thoroughfares for human and vehicular traffic? The economics profession can be divided into two camps with regards to this issue. On the one hand, are the road socialists. They dominate. In their view, it is an unquestioned and unquestionable fact that roads must be inevitably and necessarily be managed by the government. It is never explicit but rather implied by their mode of analysis. They believe that roads are a public good. Privatizing them is quickly brushed aside as preposterous. A private enterprise highway and street industry is viewed in much the same manner as was free-market agriculture by the planners during the heyday of Soviet collectivized agriculture. as inconceivable. What is the job of the economic and the analyst under such assumptions? It is to serve as a sort of managerial consultant much in the same manner as that the economists in the USSR would advise the Minister of Agriculture about crop rotation, fertilizers, etc. Only now the analysis concerns itself with such matters as road safety, congestion, planning for new clover leaves, etc. On the other hand, they are the road capitalists, or privatizers. In their view, streets and roads are no more a necessary part of the state apparatus than are cars, railways, subways, baseball bats, lima beans, or rubber bands. The former set of products can and should be analysed along the lines everyone agrees are appropriate for the latter. The purpose of this present chapter is to do just that, and to focus on one aspect of the overall analysis, that having to do with highway fatalities. two analogies to traffic safety. Suppose that a gunman shot a person with a rifle. Hauled into court, his defense was that the bullet killed the victim, not he the defendant. True, this man could concede he aimed the gun and pulled the trigger, but he was 200 yards away from the victim when he died, so he couldn't have been responsible for his death. A reaction to this defense would properly be one of dismissal on the ground that the murderer was confusing proximate with ultimate cause. We would make up to his murderer whatever penalties were accorded such behaviors. The bullet was the proximate cause of the death, but the gunman, in aiming the victim at the victim and pulling the trigger, was ultimately responsible for his demise and therefore should pay for his crime to the fullest extent of the law. Now consider the case where the restaurant goes out of business. The proximate causes are badly cooked and cold food, so sourly service, dirty conditions, lack of personal safety, poor decor, etc. But the ultimate responsibility surely lies with management. It and it alone fail to hire good cooks to ensure that the waitress, busboys, cleaners, bouncers, interior decorators, exterior architects, etc. did their assigned tasks in a satisfactory way. A competent manager would either get his employees to change their behaviors, or he would fire them and hire proficient ones in their place. This all stems from the fact that the good manager can recognize talent and has the motivation to insist upon it. What is the point of all this discussion of restaurant failures and excuse-making killers? What does it have to do with road safety under socialism? Simply this, the way the most economists approach this issue is akin to the defense of the murderer or the advice of the restaurant consultant who ignores the manager. Instead of focusing the real cause of traffic fatalities, government ownership and management of the nation's highway network Many economists have instead concentrated on the plethora of proximate causes, preeminently vehicle speed, driver alcoholism, safety regulation, and inspection. The theoretical analysis of highway safety rests on some principles which are quite elementary, indeed, distressingly so. They are so obvious that one would feel the greatest reluctance to repeat them on the pages of a professional journal, were it not that a great public policy, road socialism, has been erected upon either ignorance or the repudiation of them. It is in order to rectify this great oversight that we must examine how neoclassical economists have been dealing with road fatalities. Mainstream analysis Consider first Crandell, Grisspeichel, Keeler and Love. These authors intensively analyze automobile regulations for over two hundred pages. They state at the outset it is now possible to look back over nearly two decades of experience to evaluate this strategy of regulating the undesirable byproducts of the automobile and to determine whether some of the regulatory programs should be redesigned. This book is designed to provide a comprehensive examination. Although they do indeed subject a whole host of restrictions to great scrutiny, they never once mention the chief constraint on the market, public ownership and management. Thus, the concept of privatization completely eludes them. With regards to the thousands of people, slaughtered on the nation's highway each year, Crandall et al. adopt a rather cavalier and poliana-ish perspective. This program of federal automobile regulations has been the best planned and administered and the most successful in achieving its goal. Our estimate indicate that highway fatalities would be About 40% greater were it not for the safety features adapted since the beginning of the program. It cannot be denied that road fatalities have decreased somewhat over the last decade or so. But their assessment is overly optimistic, for it compares vehicular death on public highways not with those on private ones, but with fatalities on public roads in previous years when there were fewer safety regulations in effect. The public managers may be improving on their dismal record of a decade or two ago, but this is hardly relevant to the public-private comparison. To extend the socialism analogy, it is as if Stalin were bragging that crop yields from his present five-year plan are greatly in excess of the results of collectivized agriculture from several years back when there were fewer incentive features in effect. Loeb and Gillard criticised previous study of the contribution of governmental vehicle inspection to safety and promised to overcome the difficulties besetting them. According to them, they have mostly been plagued with statistical or methodological problems which have made their conclusion far from definite. Only relatively recently has regression analysis been used and then only on the basis of cross-sectional data. Thus, there have so far been no state-specific studies which have used econometric techniques to test the efficacy of inspection. The present study employs, for the first time, a time-series analysis of the efficacy of inspection in reducing fatalities, injuries, and accidents. And what is the conclusion of the analysis analysis? According to Leop and Gillette, it indicates that vehicle inspection in New Jersey reduces highway fatalities by 304 deaths per year. This result is obtained when other changes that also might affect fatalities are taken into account in the analysis. And indeed, they are thorough in taking into account numerous other such variables. These include the number of motor vehicle registrations, number of driver's license, vehicle mileage, personal income, number of drunk driving renovate revocations, population and gasoline consumption. All in all, a careful, a very careful job of eliminating alternative hypotheses to their own, except for one small detail, the one analyzed in this chapter. Loeb is even more specific about the possible exclusion of variables. He single out Summers in this regard, charging that if the model used by Summers omits an Important variable bias estimate may result for the coefficients of the remaining variables, and what are the specifics? LEb uses personal income, education, fuel consumption, density of population, precipitation, highway mileage, consumption of distilled spirits, and the age composition of the population. But this is surely a case of the part calling the kettle black. For Loeb himself omits an important variable with the causal effect potentially greater than all of the variables he cites put together. If only because this one is responsible for affecting virtually all of the others. Loeb again worries about the omission of variables. This time, he employs specification error tests in an attempt to root out this scourge. Again, he criticizes Summers, asserting that in contrast to the author, his models do not omit the potentially important socioeconomic and driving-related variables as in Summers' work. Needless to say, he is again guilty of the same error since he omits the crucial socio-economic variable of public or private sector ownership, management and control. As for specification error tests, they employ the usual litany of drinking age, alcohol consumption, speed, vehicle inspection, per capita fuel consumption, age of the population, but nary a mention of road socialism is made. Callahan employed no fewer than 16 different highway safety programs standards and opines that auto officials and other, uh, others assert that the nation is merely holding its own in the battle against highway accidents and that this stagnation must be due to the failure to improve the drivers and roads since the cars have been substantially improved. That's it. It is either the cars or the drivers. Since automobiles are implicitly of optimally high quality, high the cause of all the fatalities must be the man behind the wheel. It does not seem to have occurred to him that there might be a better explanation. Leif and Weber offer what at first glance seems to be a radical analysis of traffic fatalities. They state government intervention is certainly one way to decrease the number of automobile accidents. But this accident reduction is not an economic justification for government intervention. Any sort of interference with the market has a cost which must be waived against the possible de- benefits. The economic justification for government intervention is a substantial market failure. There is not sufficient evidence to conclude that various safety features ought to be mandatory. The judgment that government ought to require particular features Therefore, is a non-economic one based on an individual's idea about consumer sovereignty, the importance of particular market failures, and the social cause of injury and death. Here, at last, it might be supposed that we have analysts who, even though they reject the market, at least mention it as a possibility, since on this interpretation, these authors are the only ones cited so far to do so. They appear to earn high marks in this regard. Alas, however, such an interpretation cannot be sustained, for what they mean by the market, amazingly enough, is the present situation where government owns and manages the roads, but refrains from mandating any safety devices. If that is the market, there is no doubt that it contains many failures indeed, but this, of course, is is not the case. A true market in highway transportation would consist of private ownership and control not only of the vehicles, but of the actual traffic arteries as well. Growth socialism, unfortunately, has seeped out from the professional writings of economists to the textbooks, a sure sign of its widespread acceptance. Paul Haynes' textbook, The Economic Way of Thinking, is a case in point. This is a text supposedly devoted to the idea that private property rights are an important linchpin of economics. Yet it starts out with rush hour traffic as an example of social cooperation. He claims rather heroically that the dominant characteristic of rush hour traffic is not jam, but movement. Maybe in rural Idaho, but not on the streets of the typical metropolitan metropolitan district. Theoretical innovation. It cannot be denied that there is some innovation in the mainstream literature on this subject. In large part, it is due to the work of Love. In that paper, he explored the possibility that it is not really speed per se, which is statistically associated with roadway deaths, but rather the variance in speed. If true, the highway authority would concentrate not necessarily in slowing things as much as slowing things down as much as on reducing the tails of the speed distribution, whether, it, whether at the high end or at the low. In Laugh's opinion, variance kill, not speed. This point was sharply criticised, but in none of his exchange was there ever a mention of omitted variable bias as it applies to private roads. Also included in the same volume with others in this exchange, It's Graves, Lee, and Sexton who introduced the concept of accident externalities. Even more important, they bemoan the absence of a control experiment. One thing that is practically guaranteed to emerge from a private road system. This is because if each owner is able to set his own rules concerning not only speed averages but speed variances, control experiments would be much easier to come by. Unfortunately, all of this intellectual innovation is beside the point. No matter how clever it is akin to rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic in new ways, it is a useless effort to ward off the disaster of the iceberg. In similar manner, if the disaster of government road ownership is ignored, then no matter how imaginative or ingenious the discussion of how to solve the fatality problem, it is doomed to irrelevance. objections. Let us now consider some possible objections to our thesis. This chapter thus far takes it as axiomatic that privately provided highways would be safer than our existing highways. There are two ways to test such an assertion or hypothesis. The first is to utilize actual empirical evidence. Unfortunately there is no extant cases of roadways fully under private control with which to contrast those in the public sector. Historically, of course, many turnpikes were privately built, maintained, owned and managed. But there are no studies of those epoch available to the knowledge of the present author, which compared the safety records attained under the two very different institutional arrangements. What about the possibility of comparing toll roads with comparable public roads? or East Coast toll roads with California freeways, or French and Italian toll roads with public freeways in the same country. This, unfortunately, is not relevant here, for all of these transportation arteries are under public sector control. If none of these cases are the road managed by private profit and loss-making business concerns, just because government in some cases charges a fee or toll, for road use does not convert such operation into a fully private one. The second alternative is to cite theoretical reasons. Fortunately, here we are on firmer ground. Why might we expect firms to be more assiduous in satisfying customers than we find civil servants and politicians in serving voters and taxpayers? To ask this question is practically to answer it, at least give the insight furnish us by the public school, public choice school of thought. Simply, the market is more responsive to customer wishes than is the government to the desire of the citizenry. The dollar vote occurs each day. The ballot box vote only every, uh, every two or four years. The former may be applied narrowly to a single product, for example the Edsel, while the latter is a package deal an all-or-none proposition for one candidate or the other. That is, there was no way to register approval of Bush's policy in areas 1, 3, 5, 7 and for Clinton's in 2, 4, 6 and 8. People were limited to choosing one or the other in the last presidential election. Further, there is rational ignorance in the political sphere, given the unlikeliness, unlikeliness of one's vote being a tiebreaker. In contrast, in the private sector, the uninformed consumer is at a disadvantage. The bottom line is that private suppliers of any good or service face the prospect of loss of profit and eventual bankruptcy if they fail to satisfy customers. It can if they fail to satisfy customers, it cannot be maintained that public providers face no negative repercussion for poor service. Neither can it reason, reasonably be denied that these sanctions are of far less import. Otherwise, how can we explain the continuous existence of such entities as the post office, the motor vehicle licensing bureau, the passport service, which are notorious for lack of service to their clientele? Number two, perhaps the present public road providers have more incentive to offer an optimal level of safety. In fact, We know that there are many lawsuits against state and local highway providers alleging that a particular road was inherently unsafe. And we know that juries award big damages in such suit because of the deep pockets of the public highway providers. Isn't it possible that public providers have responded by constructing roads that are too safe? For example, public providers have placed safety rails or railroad crossing bars in situations where the cost per life saved is excessive. True, actual and threatened lawsuits provide some incentive for good behaviours on the part of bureaucrats. The problem is, however, even if they are forced to pay damage, those monies do not come from their own pockets. Rather, they are taken from general tax revenues. The incentive effects are thus greatly attenuated. In contrast, lawsuits could play an analogous role in a fully private highway industry. Only there, the benefit would be far more salutary. For if a lawsuit was lost under such assumptions, the people ultimately responsible for the poor highway management, the owners of the road, would pay out of their own pockets. But lawsuits are only of marginal concern. The reason McDonald's and Heinz and Toyota and Apple and Stradivarius and Moody's give us good products and services is not out of fear of litigation, but due to the salutary effects of competition. There is no reason to conclude that the weeding out of the inefficient firms, works, which works so well in all of those other industries, would somehow be inoperable in the case of transportation that works alone. Compare fatalities with regards to airlines and traffic arteries. When U.S. Air suffers from a greater rate of loss of life per passenger miles than its rivals, its entire existence is placed in jeopardy due to the risk of its customers deserting it for alternatives. The same sanction hardly apply to two different parallel roads. To take the easiest conceptual case for roads, where one has a better safety record than the other. Both are typically operated by the same authorities. Even if they are in different states, the motorists desert the one for the other. The financial implications for the abandoned one are so attenuated that they might as well not even exist. On the other hand, there is one sound point in this objection. It is entirely possible, given the absence of profit and loss incentives, for public managers to render short stretches of roads safe at excessive cost that it would not be undertaken by their private counterparts. Thus, we may be faced with the paradox that public thoroughfare, different different ones of them, are both over-optimally safe and over-optimally unsafe. Number 3. Might there be underkill? Assume if only for the sake of argument that the foregoing is correct, private roads will be safer than governmentally managed one. It is then possible that a private road builder might provide too high a level of safety. For example, imagine a private toll freeway that parallels a two-lane road with five stop signs and traffic lights per mile. Imagine that the toll road sets a a speed limit of 35 miles per hour and strictly polices those who go less than 30 or more than 40 miles per hour. It would be safer. People would use it, because even a 35 miles per hour road beats the constant stop and go of the parallel socialist road. But a high degree of safety on the toll road is suboptimal in the sense that most people would prefer- rather trade a little less safety for a lot more time savings. Let us take even more of an exaggerated case. Suppose one private owner insisted upon a 3mph speed limit, with traffic lights every 15 feet. Is there any doubt that a competing parallel road would compete away all the customers of such a foolish firm? To return to an earlier example, the analogous situation would be if the restaurant supplied a waitress, cook, busboy, bouncer, to each separate patron, and all of these employees got in each other's way. The aphorism... Too many cooks spoil the broth applies in all contexts. The bottom line is that the market tends to obviate both over and under optimal allocation of resources, whether in terms of safety or weight or quality or any other dimension. But what of the change that our present number of highway fatalities and non-fatal highway accidents? Our present number of highway fatalities is about 41,462. And non-fatal highway accidents of approximately 2.21 million is rather really either under-optimal or optimal. On the face of it, this is difficult to accept. The claim can be seriously offered, I maintain, only because, like death and taxes, highway fatality seems inevitable. This, I claim, emanates from the mindset which sees road socialism as the only possible alternative. To place this in context, imagine that carnage of this proportion were to occur in any private industry: mining, air travel, sports, whatever. Under these conditions, a hue and cry of vast proportion would arise. Senator Ted Kennedy would hold outraged hearings determined to get to the bottom of how we can allow such the selfish, greedy pursuit of an unholy buck to kill and maim so many people. The New York Times would call for the nationalization of such an enterprise. In point of fact, however, this mutilation of the innocents occur on public property. It is time, it is past time, to think in terms of privatization. Conclusion The present chapter has criticized numerous analysts of highway safety as road socialists. This is a charge that will amaze these authors. When they set out to do their work, ideology was perhaps the furthest things from their mind. Yet for all of that, it cannot be denied that the shoe fits. The analysis presumes governmental ownership and control of transportation arteries. While they call into question every other variable which might conceivably affect power traffic safety, and even some which do not. They take for granted these institutional arrangements. If that is not socialism, it will do very well until something better comes along.